Hello, everyone, and welcome to the More Money, No Problems podcast. I am Liz Monson, and with me is Lisa Monson. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about credit cards. But before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that we are not professional financial advisors, and this podcast is strictly our opinion. Anytime you're going to make a major financial decision, you should talk to a financial professional first. So often I have the experience of receiving a lot of junk mail. And it seems like a lot of this junk mail is not just coupons or magazines or catalogs or ads, but is credit cards. There are envelopes that have fake credit cards in them or real credit cards in them sent to me from various banks and different agencies, which is a little bit concerning, but also makes me wonder, are these real credit cards? Could I go out and use this credit card? Well, they might be real credit cards, but in any case, you couldn't immediately go out and use it. You would have to send in all of your information to the credit card company. Usually there's a form that comes in with the card. The card isn't live and ready to be used. It's it's a marketing scheme. So if I throw it away, could anyone else just activate it? Not likely because they would have to have information about you, your personal ID information, and send that in. The best thing to do would be to shred the card along with all the other information that came in the packet. So sometimes I feel like I receive one or two of these with each time I check the mail. Why are they sending me so many? Well, it could be that they see that you've got a good credit score and they make better money off people that have good credit. And so they're interested in trying to get you to be one of their customers. Hmm. But there's a lot better ways to get a credit card than to take the ones that come in the mail. You really need to do your homework and find the credit card that's going to be the best fit for what your needs are. So that is another question I have. These cards are coming from a variety of places from Visa, from MasterCard, et cetera. But also, where do credit cards come from? I mean, my credit card is from my credit union, but it's a Visa credit card. So it's through Visa, but it's through my credit union. Who actually makes the credit cards? The financial institution issues the cards and owns the loans. So they're the ones that have the risk of loss if you don't pay your balance back or you have any fraudulent transactions on your account. They also decide what the terms for the card are going to be, things like fees and interest rates. Visa and MasterCard have the infrastructure that connects the merchant and the financial institution to process the transaction. They also set rules for the financial institution on things like using the Visa and MasterCard logos, and they provide marketing and other services for the institutions. So can I get credit cards straight from Visa or MasterCard, or do I have to get them through a financial institution. You have to get them through a financial institution. Or you can also get them, some cards you can get through retailers. Like, for example, you could get a Gap Visa card. So are those credit cards that you get from retailers real credit cards? Do they have higher interest rates? What's the deal with retail credit cards? Well, it depends. To carry on the Gap example, they've got two cards. One's called a Gap card, and one's called a Gap Visa card. The Gap card you can only use to buy things at a Gap store. The Gap Visa card you can use to buy things at anywhere that accepts Visa. So what about other retailers? I guess the example I'm thinking of now is like an Alaska Airlines Visa card. Right. That's a Visa card in that you can use it anywhere that Visa's accepted. 
these cards, they're meant to be for someone that uses that particular service a lot. And so they're enticing you to use their store and then also have the benefit of being able to use that card anywhere visas accepted. So with the Alaska Airlines card, for example, you're getting airline miles every time you make a purchase. Or the GAP visa card, you're getting GAP bonus points that can be saved up and then you could get, you know, a rewards card to buy something additional at GAP. So are these good deals? Or is it a good idea to get this kind of credit card? Do they have extra fees in place? What makes it worth it for the retailer? Does the retailer get a chunk of the profits from interest from Visa or MasterCard? I'm not familiar with the individual agreements that those retailers have, but definitely there is something in it for them. They're trying to get you to be a loyal customer and they may be getting a fee from the bank that's issuing that card for them. So, for example, with the Alaska Airlines card, the bank is Bank of America. And so the agreement in that case would be between Alaska Airlines and Bank of America if there is any sort of kickback. So if you have an Alaska Airlines card, do you then become a customer of Bank of America? Yes. So do you have to have an account at Bank of America or can you just have the credit card? You can just have the credit card. You don't have to open like a checking account? No. So how much research did you do into the issuing bank of retail credit cards before you get that credit card? I don't think that's particularly a significant thing. Okay. I think the more significant thing are what are the terms of the particular card that you're getting? What is the interest rate? What are the fees associated with the card? If it's a card that has some special rewards, you really need to look at whether the rewards that you're going to be getting are something that fits in with your habits and that you would actually want to be using. And if the fees on the card are What do you mean by fees? Do you mean like, is there like a yearly fee you have to pay to have an Alaska Airlines credit card? Yes, I think the fee is $75. Okay, and these will differ between cards. Exactly. So like going back to the GAP example, I don't recall if they have a fee or not, but the way theirs works is if you spend $200 on the card, then you get a $10 reward certificate that you can use to buy something more at GAP. So essentially that gave you a 5% discount. The rewards are only useful if first you were going to spend $200 at Gap and then you wanted to spend $10 more and you were going to spend that money anyway. Otherwise, the card doesn't do you any good. It's the same thing with the mileage card. You have to spend, I believe you need 25,000 points to get a free airline ticket. Is each point equal to a dollar? Right. So you've got to spend... You have to spend that much money. Exactly. So if you spend... 15000 a month on your Visa card, you're going to get a free ticket every couple months. But say you spend $300 a month on your card, you're never going to get a free ticket. Now, maybe... Right, and you're paying an annual fee. Right. Also, some rewards cards, they maybe don't start giving you rewards points until you've spent a certain amount of money on the card. Or maybe there's a maximum number of rewards points you can get each month or each year. You've really got to do your research to be sure you're getting a deal that works for you. What should the average person do? Should they just go to their financial institution and get a card there? Or should they do a bunch of research and figure out if they should get like a specialty card? First of all, it depends on how much you're willing to do the research. 
if you don't want to do any research, I would go to a credit union. Their cards are generally going to be a better deal, I would say. Another important feature is whether you carry a balance or you pay your card off every month. The rewards cards tend to have much higher interest rates. For example, the GAP card is between 23 and 24% interest rate. Whereas a credit union card, if you have really good credit, could be 10% or less. Okay, so it could be up to twice as much. It could be. Okay. So I guess my next question is, when I see ads for credit cards, they're oftentimes advertising things like the new platinum visa for fancy businessmen or something. What is the differences between those cards? You know, it used to be that the gold card and the classic card and the platinum card, they meant generally the same thing at different institutions. But these days, you can't tell based on just, is it a platinum card or a gold card, what that means. You have to look at the card itself. The general idea is that those different types of cards will have different limits. So like a platinum card maybe has the ability to get a higher limit than a gold card or a classic card, but not always. Also, the card benefits usually vary between those types of cards. By card benefit, I mean if you buy a large consumer item with your card, a card benefit could be that they give you an extended warranty. Or if you use your card to rent a car, a card benefit could be that you get car rental, collision damage, and theft coverage without an additional charge. Also, the different cards will have different interest rates, different fees. Some might have an annual fee. Maybe the gold has an annual fee, but the platinum doesn't. Things like that. Mostly what I think the issuers are doing is trying to create cards that appeal to certain groups that they would like to have as customers. I guess the next natural question is, should you have more than one credit card? You know, if you have a good, stable job, Probably two is sort of the maximum I would think that's reasonable. You don't want to get a ton of different cards out there. It's a lot to keep track of. And at some point, it doesn't look particularly good on your credit history. So if you have two, what should be the differences between the two? Are there two types of credit cards you should have? If you had an option, you may want to have one MasterCard and one Visa card. Just from the standpoint that not every merchant accepts every type of card. Especially if, let's say, you were going to go to a foreign country and there things get a little more tricky as to what card works where. So it it would give you a backup. You know how sometimes if your card gets compromised, the issuer has to reissue your card? Well, in the meantime, while you're waiting for the reissue, you could be without a credit card altogether. So having two just gives you a little flexibility. Can you get, say, a Visa card and a MasterCard through the same financial institution, or is each financial institution typically only tied to one backer or whatever? Generally, they're only tied to one because they enter into special agreements and they get a better deal if they agree to be an exclusive issuer of one brand. So does that mean that you should have two financial institutions, or does that mean you should have one financial institution and one credit card that is either... That is the other type that you don't have, Visa or MasterCard. That's maybe through a retailer or a special program like the Alaska Airlines. I think you're generally best off to have one of the cards with your regular financial institution. And the second card could be anything. It could be a card through a second financial institution, maybe a second credit union, or it could be a specialty card if that's the kind of card that fits for you. Okay. Well, 
So we're talking a lot about Visa and MasterCard. I'm also wondering about American Express. What is an American Express card and how is it different than Visa and MasterCards? With Visa and MasterCard, we talked about how the financial institution issues the cards and holds the loans, and Visa and MasterCard process the transactions. Now, generally, with American Express, they're doing it all. They're issuing the cards, holding the loans, and processing the transactions. They've got a full range of cards, similar to what you would find with a Visa or MasterCard branded card. They have rewards cards. They have cashback cards. They've got airline mileage cards. One difference I think you would see with an American Express card is that they are not as widely accepted at merchants, especially smaller merchants and merchants in foreign countries. Now, years ago, American Express was known for requiring you to pay off your balance every month and also for not having card limits. But these days, I would say their cards are very similar to other kinds of cards that you could get in the marketplace. Well, should we maybe take a American Express pause then and talk about limits? Sure. How do I decide what a good limit is for me? Do I get to ask for a limit or do they just tell me what limit I get? Well, you can definitely ask for a limit. Whether or not they give you the limit you want is going to depend on their lending process and if they feel that that's an appropriate amount of credit to extend to you. I think the most important thing in deciding what limit you want is what amount of limit you're comfortable with that you'll spend responsibly and be able to pay back. So should it be, say you get paid twice a month, should your credit card limit be less than one of your paychecks? It, you know, it varies so much between lenders, but if you had a stable, longer-term job, I would say that the most that would be a conservative, reasonable limit is something between one and two times your monthly salary. If you're just looking to get your first credit card, probably something in the $500 to $1,000 range would be a conservative, reasonable limit if you had a good, stable job. So once I have a credit card limit, how does that limit get changed? Can I ask for a different limit? Will they just give me a different limit? Can they change it without asking me? They can change it without asking you, but they'll notify you that they're making the change. Can you say no thank you? You can absolutely say no thank you and say, I would just like the limit I already have. That's what I'm comfortable with. The decision to increase your limit would be based on a variety of criteria, which is going to vary from one financial institution to another. Some common criteria would be things like your payment history on the card, how long you've had the card, how much you use the card, your payment history on other loans you have with the institution, and any credit scores or other credit information on you that the institution receives from credit bureaus. And a follow-up from last week, as I recall, you don't necessarily want to fill your credit card to the limit every month. So if you do that, if you keep the percentage down, are they going to raise your credit limit or are they not going to? It completely depends on the issuer and what their practices are. Is that decided by the financial institution or is that decided by Visa or MasterCard? The financial institution. Pretty much everything related to your card, limits, fees, interest rates, payment requirements, it's all decided by the financial institution because it's their loan and they're the ones that have the risk as to whether you pay back the loan or you don't. So back to American Express. I've also heard about American Express that they're more liberal with who can hold the card, that they'll give joint cards to people who are not married or who they're just less picky. Is that true or is that not accurate? I wouldn't think that's accurate as a general statement. Well, 
that's all we have time for today. We will finish talking about credit cards in our next episode, Credit Cards Part 2. And now it's time for some listener questions. Our first question is actually from me, and some of you may have noticed that we haven't recorded in a while or posted in a while, and it's because I moved. And this question came up when I was moving. I need to change my address on my bank accounts, but I'm concerned about the timing of the change. If I have online purchases I have made that haven't posted yet, and I change my address now, will my outstanding purchases be denied? No, they shouldn't be. Your purchase gets approved at the time you do the actual purchase. So they check your address or any sort of authorizing information at the time of purchase. So you should be fine. How long does it normally take for an address to change on the account? The address at the financial institution should change just as soon as you give them the new address. But sometimes connecting systems, and credit cards can be one of them, or debit cards, it may take, say, 24 hours for the connecting system to get updated, depending on how frequently they update it. But you could ask your financial institution if there'll be any delays in any of their system updates at the time you give them the address change. Okay. Our next question is from a listener, and it's our first official question to come in the website, so it's very exciting. And this is it. Liz and Lisa, I was recently laid off, and although I have found a new job, I'm worried about what to do with my 401k. In my company's separation information, they gave me three options. One, leaving the funds in the plan. Two, roll the funds over to an IRA. Or three, withdrawing the funds, which comes with a tax penalty. My balance is a bit under 5k. I assume that in my life, I will have several jobs that will not always have the option to roll over a 401k. Is now the time to start my own personal IRA? Can you talk some about these different options and what their consequences are? Sure. I'll assume that our listener is at least 10 years away from retirement and 10 years away from being 59 and a half, that they don't have any loans outstanding against their 401k plan that any matching contributions or profit-sharing payments have already been added to the account, that they don't have any stock investments in their 401k balance, and that they don't have any issues where they need to protect their money from personal lawsuits. Okay, so with those assumptions, let's go over her options. Um, Let's start with the last option, which is to withdraw the funds from the IRA. Is that a good idea? No, that is absolutely the last thing you want to do. She's right. There is a penalty if you withdraw funds and you're under 59 and a half. Penalty is 10%. Plus, you have to pay regular income taxes on any withdrawal from your 401k. Okay, so don't withdraw the funds unless you're desperate. The next choice is rolling the funds over into a personal IRA. Is that a good idea? That's a really good idea. She will have then an IRA that she can add to in the future, plus anytime she leaves an employer and has a 401k, she can take that new 401k balance and put it in this IRA. So great option. Okay, so yes on the roll funds over to an IRA. What about her first option, which is keeping the funds in the 401k at her previous employer's? Uh, That's an okay option. The plus side is she would still have the 401k and it would continue to grow. Can she contribute to it even though she's not working at that company anymore? No. 
Okay, so she wouldn't be able to contribute to it, but it would be like a little nest egg waiting there for her. Right. Will she be able to roll it over into an IRA later? Yes. Okay. Also, another benefit of 401k plans is some employers, but not all, allow you to borrow against the plan. So that can give some people some peace of mind that if they're going to have a problem in the future, they know, well, I can still contribute to my retirement plan because if I get in a crisis, I can borrow against it. I don't recommend ever doing that, but some people want to have that option. And borrowing against it is different than withdrawing it. Yes. You're not getting that 10% tax penalty. Correct. Okay. So we should talk about a couple of downsides, though, of leaving it there. One is that because she's an ex-employee, she may not get... She should get, but may not, for whatever reason, get information, general information about the plan, like a new fund is available or those sorts of things. Plus, if she has a question, since she's an ex-employee, she isn't going to be first on the list for someone to call back because she's not a current employee, which is reasonable. And then the last thing is sometimes an employer will charge extra fees to ex-employees that leave money in the 401k plan that they don't charge to current employees. Okay, so there might be some downsides, but it depends on how her old company manages their 401k plans a little bit. Right. Um, I've also heard that later down the line, her company could sell her 401k plan to another 401k management company. Oh, yes. Is that true? Yes. And she wouldn't have any say in that. Correct. So that could also be a concern, potentially. Right. And... In thinking about that kind of concern, the big advantage of the IRA is it gives you full control over who's managing it, what funds you're investing in, gives you lots of options, lots of choices. That That's really a good option for her to put it in an IRA. Okay, so there is one more choice that she kind of mentions, um, which is moving her 401k from her old company into a 401k plan at her new company, which may or may not be something the new company offers. Correct. Not all companies offer that. If that is available, is that something she should consider? Sure. She should consider that, especially if the new employer has matching contributions and she's going to continue to want to be actively using her 401k plan. That is a good option. Okay. So our next question is actually the second part of the previous question, which is this. In a related question... How do I go about finding a trusted financial professional to help me with these questions that come up in my life? Do I go to a bank or to my retirement slash investment services provider? How do I know these people don't just want to sell me additional services that may or may not be best for me in the long run? That's a really good question. You want to find someone who is not compensated in any way by your investments. And by that, I mean someone that would be getting a commission on a sale of an investment. But who is that person? Like how? Who is the person that doesn't get compensated? There are fee-only investment providers, and we can put a link in the show notes to where you can find those sort of people. They get paid by an hourly fee. In addition to a fee-only advisor, another way to get investment advice is through some of the online services that are available now. They have been developed to the point that I think there are some worth considering, and we can talk about those when we talk about our investment um, episode. Okay. And that's also something we can put a link to in the show notes. Yes. Yes. Okay. And let me give one more option. I think if you want something really simple, just go to Vanguard. And when you set up an IRA there, they will help you with a very simple investment plan. Cheap and simple. I'm sorry, but what is Vanguard for people that maybe don't know? 
Vanguard is an investment company, but they're more like a credit union in that they are owned by the investors. Okay. We'll talk about them more later when we do our retirement show. So that's all for today. Until next time, this was More Money, No Problems. If you have any questions about today's episode, or you would like to make a suggestion for a future episode, please contact us through our website, moremoneynoproblemspodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening.